pray, okay? Father God, we just we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for friends. Um, we thank you for um, all the blessings that you've given us. Father God, we thank you for Art, Lord, and the blessing that he was to each of our lives, Lord God. And uh, Lord, we just uh, ask that you'd be with us today, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us by your Spirit, Lord God. I pray that you'd open our hearts to your Word and to your Spirit, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, so today, I wanted to talk about revival. And before we start, I kind of wanted to ask, like, just put the question out there. What What is revival to you guys? Like, when you hear the word revival, what do you think of? Anyone? Yeah. More obedience, like joy. Um, I think of everybody being happy and joyful and like miracles taking place and a lot more prayer and fellowship, you know, just the camaraderie of the believers, mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. okay. I think of restoration. Mm -hmm. Elaborate on that a little bit. Um, People who came away from the Kind of like what Elizabeth was saying, like personal transformation, like like conviction and repentance, and mm -hmm. um, I, <clears throat> I definitely think of like miracles and praying mm. for sure, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, just expecting the unexpected. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Mm. And I think of countless people being saved. Countless people's hearts turn towards the Lord in hunger for Him. Hmm. Lots and lots of people. Yeah, those are all good. Um, yeah, so, you know, I really felt like the Lord kind of putting it on my heart to teach some things about revival. And I don't know if it's going to be a one-time thing or several times or, or what exactly. But um, I kind of been hesitant to teach on it because in the first place you say the word revival and all kinds of ideas pop into people's minds right and you know we've we you know and it's almost like it's been done to death you know what i'm saying i mean just even the word and the concept i mean like you can be driving down the street all the time and see signs on churches revival march 16th to march 28th you know or whatever and stuff and you know and and so everyone has these concepts and ideas of what revival is and you know and and i think we've kind of been oversaturated with revival with the concept of revival but yet we haven't actually had the real thing we haven't actually um, experience what true revival is. Now, I think we've had sprinkles. I think we've had showers. I think, you know, that God has poured out some measure of blessing in certain places. But if you read about the histories of revivals under like Finney and, and um, uh, Wesley and, and things like that, they're completely different from, from what a lot of the things that we're calling revival now. 
And so I looked up the word revival, and the word revival is, is from the Latin, is from the word vivir, which means life, and re, which means back. Mm -hmm. And so the, the literal word revival means to come back, to bring yeah. something back to life. Yeah. And so um, while, while it does involve um, unbelievers coming into the body and things like that, the main thing that I think about when, when I think about revival is it's a, it is a bringing back of life into the church, right? Because the thing is that the problem is, is as the church goes, the world goes. So we, we look at the world right now, and it's, it's not hard to see that our world is in big trouble. Um, our world is, is complete, is, is, is more and more anti-Christ. It's more and more um, against the things of God and, and trying to get rid of God in our society and, and just... Um, it's become polarized, right? Where, where there's the church on this side and the world on this side and the church looks down its nose at the world and the world hates the church. And, and, um, and so there's this big gap between the church and the world. And part of it is, in my opinion, is because of the testimony of the church, right? We are not living what God had called us to do because if we were, then the way that... that Jesus set up the church was that we are to be a reflection of him, right? Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. And the problem is, is that in the church these days is we want to make everything relevant to the world, right? We want to be seeker friendly. We want to be, we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to preach a gospel that offends people. We don't want to... Uh, talk about, um, you know, sin and being and, and doing away with sin and, and living righteously before the Lord and, and repenting and things like that. Those are like even uh, there, there's this there was a huge move to change the words to the song Amazing Grace. Right. And where it says, you know, um, God saved a wretch like me and people want to change it to a person. Or, you know what I'm saying? They want to blunt the whole message of the cross and the whole message of the cross is that you are dead in your trespasses and your sins, right? It's not that we're just bad. It's not just that we do bad things or that, you know, we're just a little bit off or like, um, you know, but it's that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And there is nothing within me that wants Jesus. There is nothing within me that wants to be like God. Now, uh, I might want the benefits of religion, you know, it might make me uh, respectable in society, it might, you know, I might uh, be able to develop friendships through religion that, that benefit my job or, or my social standing or whatever, you know, it may make me look good in front of my mother-in-law, right? But the gospel says that a person is dead in their trespasses and sins. It says that people in our natural state, before we come to Christ, we hate God. And we hate everything that has to do with God. Now, we may cloak it over in nice, um, nice um, uh, respectable language or nice respectable on the outside. And we look respectable, but we still don't. We still hate the things of God. And so the thing about uh, Christianity is it's not to make a bad person better. Christianity and the cross, and the reason why Jesus died was to make dead men live, right? Is to bring us life. And what happens is we in the church so many times as we get, if, if God is not continually pouring out his spirit, 
we we tend to get to fall into ruts, don't we? And we, and we tend to fall into just doing things out of routine. Even like Bible study and worship and, and prayer and things like that can be, doing, it can be something that this is what I do. I get up at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning and I, I spend an hour seeking God, right? And I know, I mean, it happens with me, right? I notice that there's times when, man, I am just doing this out of, out of routine. And, it's, and, and the thing about the Bible says is Jesus wants to pour rivers of living water into us, right? He wants to flow in, in us and through us and out of us to the world. And the problem is, is we get so caught up in just doing our thing and living our lives and doing our religious stuff that we, that we a lot of times lose the power of the gospel, right? And, and once we do that, then we have lost our ability to affect the world that's around us. If, if the Holy Spirit is not actively flowing through us, we're not going to be able to touch the world. And that's, again, I think that that's the problem. So many people, they go to church, right? And, and they go to church, and what they experience is they experience a religious service, but they don't experience the life of Christ flowing through, through um, the service, right? Um, you know, I've told you guys the story about when I first came to the Lord and how I went to church and because of the worship and because of the, the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through the worship, I mean, it just, I knew that I was going to be back. I, it drew my heart just because I could sense the power of God through that worship, right? And so how many times have we gone to church, have we gone to a service where we felt the power of God in such a way that it was able to change your life? And then there's other times when we just go and it's just, we're just going through the motions, Right? Um, and in Matthew 5, verse 13, now Jesus was saying to, this to his disciples, but it applies to the whole church. And in verse thir um, Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see that? And that's Jesus' desire for his people. That's his desire for the church, and that's what the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be salt and light to the world. We are not just a religious service. We're not a babysitting service for you to bring your kid, children to. You know, back in the old days, they didn't have youth groups. They didn't have children's church where, you know, the children were separated from the parents and things like that. The church back in the old days, it was the same for everybody. And there were kids. There were, there, there were kids that would give their hearts to the Lord and were sincere and they were... They were on fire for Jesus. And again, part of this whole thing is, is a lot of times, in a lot of places, church has become a machine, right? It's become this thing that has to be fed. It's, it's, um, there are people that are in charge of it. And, uh, and again, this doesn't apply to every church, and it's not, you know. But again, what happens is when church becomes a machine, what, you, what, it, be, what it does is it puts out cookie-cutter Christians who all look the same, who all say the same, who all talk the same, but there's no life. And the world that we are living in is in darkness. 
The world that we are living is is in gross darkness and it's getting darker and darker and darker all the time. And the reason why is because the life of Jesus is not flowing through his people. And that's why we need to be revived. We, the church of Jesus, needs new life. We need to experience the life and the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to go to church, not just to do religious things, but to touch our hearts first. And when, 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 and that's the whole thing. When Jesus can touch his church, when he can speak life into his people, then it's naturally going to flow out to the world. I mean, it can't, you can't help it. If there is life, it will flow out into the world, right? And that's what God wants for his people. And that's what he's looking for. And then um, turn to First Peter chapter two. If there's true light, it will draw people to. Yeah, and that's what Jesus said. If I am lifted up, I will draw the world to myself. And the problem is, is again, a lot of times in the church, we're not lifting up Jesus. Mm -hmm. We're lifting up our programs. Mm -hmm. We're lifting up our church. We're lifting up our denomination. We're lifting up our this, our that, our other thing and stuff. And it all looks good. It all looks religious, but it's almost like painting lipstick on a corpse and trying to prop them up and say, this is life. You know, and, and God is wanting, God, you know what? God looks at the world and his heart is broken over it. And one of the ways that you can tell that, that when, when the life of Jesus is missing in the church is when the church looks at the world and looks down their noses at them, right? We look at the world and we're like, oh, look at these sinners, you know? And, and you see it so much in politics. So many politicians use the church and use Christians to get elected, right? And then they, and then, then it's all about the legislating. Well, we're going to legislate this law in, and you know, and we're gonna we're gonna make it a law of the land where you know you can't do this sin or you can't do that sin. And see, that's not affecting people's hearts. The only thing that will affect their hearts is the life of Jesus flowing through the church. And again, this is what religion does. Religion says, "I want everyone to copy what I'm doing." I want everyone to try to imitate this. And what we're doing is we read the scriptures and we look at the Bible and we, spe we, we preach messages and we, we talk about like, okay, this is, this is what Christianity looks like. This is what we're all going to try to emulate, right? This is what we're going to try to look like. And it's like, a bunch, you know, the lemmings that all go and they, you know, one of them falls off the cliff and they all follow it, right? And... Certainly, there is the aspect of we need to imitate those who are imitating Christ, right? But the only way that we can do that is if the life of Christ is flowing through us. And, and, the, and the thing that we, we need to be seeking in this hour is the power of Jesus, right? Not, I mean, we don't need more church, right? We don't need more um, putting on the show. We don't need more of that. What we need is the life of Christ flowing through us. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, it says, And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but it's choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, this in itself is awesome, Right? Because in this, God is saying, you guys, you believers, you Christians has the privilege now. In the Old Testament, there were a select few. 
Number one, that you had to be the select few. You had to be the people of Israel. And then you had to be of the tribe of Judah. And there, even now, out of that tribe, there was a, a select few who could minister unto the Lord. And now he's saying, you all, all of us as believers have the privilege of ministering before the Lord. And again, if you read the Old Testament, so many times, the, old, the whole Old Testament is just a story of sometimes they were following God, sometimes they weren't, right? Sometimes the priests and the ministers of the Lord were truly serving Him, truly offering up pure and holy sacrifices. Other times they were just going through the motions, and I believe that that's where we are in history right now is that the church as a whole is just going through the motions. Now, there are obviously pockets and there are people who love the Lord. And in every church, I believe there are people who are truly seeking God with all their hearts. But God is, again, the spirit of the Lord right now is wanting his people as a whole to begin to seek him for life in the church as a whole. And it will draw all men to him. He says in verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he, believes, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for, you, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of, a, of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Look at this. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see that? So that is the purpose of the church. You know, we all know the scripture that when Jesus comes, he's coming for a bride that's pure and spotless and white and without any blemish, any, 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 any imperfection. And the thing is, is he doesn't want that when he comes, right? We were talking about earlier, you know, some, some people are, are obsessing over, well, Jesus is coming soon. Well, maybe he is, maybe he's not. It doesn't matter. Even if he doesn't come, we are supposed to be like those brides in the pure garments, the white, uh, unstained, unblemished garments, right? And that's what he wants for his church because um, Jesus doesn't walk, is not walking the earth now in physical form, right? So what is his reflection to the world? It's us. It's the church. You know, so many times you see, you hear people say, you know what? If only I could just have a Jesus with some flesh on it. Well, you know what? That's us, right? And the reason why they're saying that is because they haven't seen that. And unfortunately, maybe they're not seeing that in me. Because we are to be to this world as Jesus was. And, but the only way that that's going to happen is if we open up the dams in our, in our hearts, everything that's not like him, whether it be sin, whether it be just the cares of this world, whether it be whatever it is, just blocking the flow. God wants us to unblock that flow and allow him to minister to the world around us. And the problem is that so many times, I know, I know for me, myself, I get so caught up in my job. I get caught up in, in trying to, to make a living and trying to pay my bills and taxes, blah, 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 one thing after another and stuff. And we forget that we, every single day, we are in a world and we are surrounded 
by people who have no conception of who Jesus is. And I remember there was a time in this country when everyone had heard the gospel. Everyone knew at least who Jesus was in their minds. But now there are people in this country, in people that are around us who have never even heard the gospel, who have no conception of who Jesus is. And we brush shoulders with these guys every day. Maybe not every day, but you know, in a relative sort of way. Um, and the thing is, is, is again, we, you know, a lot of times these days when you hear about revival, they're like, come here, evangelist so-and-so, and come see the great revival, and come hear the man preach, and come hear the, you know, and it's all about the, the people, right? And it's all about um, what's happening in this church, and it's all about the things that are happening, too, you know, the, you know, and people are, you know, being, and I, again, I believe that when the Spirit of God is moving, things will happen. Supernatural things will happen. But that's not what the revival is about, right? When the Spirit of God moves, things happen. And supernatural things happen. But I believe that when you, when you hear stories about so-called revivals these days, it's all about the things that are happening, right? And I wanted to read just kind of an excerpt from this one book. Um... This guy wrote a book in, in 1742, so the language is going to be a little bit different and stuff, but he's writing about revival. He says, A day of the ministration in the Spirit would bring many rare and rich blessings along with it, such as discoveries of the Redeemer's glory. And I like how that's the first thing, right? So is this what actually happened? He's telling about what happened Yeah, he's here. talking okay. about actual revival. Okay. And he says, and the first thing he talks about is just such as discoveries of the Redeemer's glory. And that's the whole thing. The number one thing that happens in true revival is, is the discovery, again, of the glory of God. And just how majestic God is and how this whole thing is not about us. It's not about look at what we're doing. It's not about look at who the speaker is. Matter of fact, in a revival in Wales in 1904, um, the main guy that God used was a man named Evan Roberts. Um, Evan Roberts would go to a church and he would never announce where he was going. But he would go to a church. If he found out that the people were there expecting to hear him preach, he would not say a word. Right? And sometimes he would go with the intentions of not doing anything, of just being led by the Spirit. Sometimes he would teach, sometimes he wouldn't teach. Um, sometimes it would just be a whole song service of just worship to the Lord. And so it wasn't about the man. It wasn't about the leaders. And it, wasn't, it was just about being led by the Spirit of God. And it was the glorification of the Lord. And that's the whole thing is it's the glorification of the Holy The Holy Spirit... Um, the Bible says in John, I think 16, I can find the reference for you later, but it says that, that Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, and it says when he comes, he will not glorify himself, but basically he's, he will reveal me and stuff. And so that's the thing. When the Holy Spirit is moving, it is not going to be to glorify himself. The Holy Spirit always glorifies the Father. And if the Holy Spirit is not going to glorify himself, but he's there to glorify the Father, how much less should we be about glorifying ourselves, right? How much less should it be about us and my ministry and what I'm doing and, and you know, and, you know, and preached and seven, you know, how many people got saved and things like that. It's about what God is doing and his glory alone, right?
So he says, the day of the ministration of the Spirit would bring many rare and rich blessings along with it, such as discoveries of the Redeemer's glory, convictions of the evil and vileness of sin. And again, we live in a day and age where, you know, people sin like it's nothing. Um, you know, it's just, it, and the thing is, when the Spirit of God moves, it does a work in your heart, in our hearts, where we don't want to sin. We do not want to offend him. We don't want to do anything that's outside of the glory of God because we, when, when the Spirit of, heart, of God is moving in our hearts, even all the secret things, all the things that, you know, we kind of let slide sometimes and we know that the Lord's not, not pleased with those things or even the besetting sins that, that sometimes we kind of we hold and we don't want to quite let go of. Those things, when, when the Spirit of God moves in our heart, it's like those things get cut off. Because it's it's not it doesn't glorify the Lord and we don't when when you're living in that place of revival and the Holy Spirit is moving He deals with those things in our hearts and again that's how you can that's how we can see that there is not revival in the church because you know you you there can be all kinds of manifestations going on and all kinds of spiritual things going on but if people aren't being delivered from their love for sin then the Holy Spirit is not moving in that. Does that make sense? You can call it whatever you want to. You can say that this is whatever, and it may be some showers, it may be some sorts of blessings, but one of the main things that happens in a true revival, a true move of God, is the first thing that happens is people begin to repent of their sins. I mean, you read about um, the ministries of, of Finney and, and the Wesleys and, and things. Man, they would be preaching to people and people would literally be holding on to their chairs for fear that they were going to slide into hell <laughs> because of their sins. Wow. And again, in every revival, there are all these extraneous things and these other things that happen. But the main focus on all these revivals in the past were that the conviction of sin and getting right with the Lord and no longer offending him by the way that they were living. Um. He says, uh, such as discoveries of the Redeemer's glory, convictions of the evil and vileness of sin, many crowns in victory and triumph to Christ, great additions to his friends and followers, in other words, people getting saved. It says, then gospel light would shine clear, saving knowledge increase, ignorance and error vanish, riches of free grace would be displayed, and Satan would be bound up. Then ministers and ordinances would be lively, in other words, there'd be life to it, instead of just a, a sermon or a message or whatever. He says, secure sinners would be awakened, dead souls would live, hard hearts would be melted, strong lusts subdued, and many sons and daughters born to God. Such a day would heal divisions. Uh, again, so all the, all the, you know, in revival, anytime that you read about revival in history, people from different denominations will come together. And they wouldn't care about what denomination they were of. They wouldn't care which church do you go, which church do you go to. And no, we can't share the gospel because we don't want people going to your church. It didn't matter to them. What mattered to them alone was that people were getting saved and brought into the kingdom of God. They didn't care if they went to your church or my church or whose church they went to, but that people were getting saved, right? And so when God's moving, when the Holy Spirit is there, the denominational stuff falls apart. He says, um, uh, such a day would heal divisions, cement breaches, make all of us of one heart and mind, and bring down heaven to earth. 
This would redress our grievances, remove our complaints, and unite uh, Christ's scattered flock. It would make true religion and holy persons to be in esteem, vice to be in disgrace, and iniquity as a shame to hide its face. Then Sabbaths and communions would be days of heaven, prayer and praise, spiritual converse, talking of Christ and redeeming love would be our chiefest delight. So, again, revival, when, when revival hits, it's, then it's not like, well, I got to go pray now, right? It's not like, well, now I got to go hear the word of God. It's like when revival happens, people are lining up outside the doors. There are so many cases of, of when revival happens, people are, are lined up outside the building and there, there are stories of revival where people couldn't get into the buildings so they stood outside and they opened the windows so that the people could participate. And it, again, you know, it's not like people are trying to force people to go to church. And people aren't forcing people to pray. You know, it's like now, if you're to have a prayer meeting, like, if you have a potluck supper, every, the whole church is going to be there, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you have a prayer meeting, how many people will show up? A small, small percentage, right? Very few people compared to a potluck will show up to pray. When revival happens, it's the complete opposite. People are there on their knees because they want to see God move. And the Spirit of God is moving through them, and, and it's their prayers. And, and God is working in a revival. And that's the thing about revival. When revival happens, it's man and God working together as a team. Right? Because the, God, the heart of God has always been and always will be the salvation of people. God wants to see people on fire. He wants to see people alive. It's us. That's the problem, because we get so easy, we get so comfortable, we get so relaxed in our state. Well, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven, so we kind of lose our fire. We kind of lose our, our passion. We kind of lose our desires, right? Mm -hmm. and, that's, and so that brings us to a question. Does prayer change things? Yes. Does prayer change things? Yes. Right? Because the thing is, is, a lot of times we it's, it's kind of we kind of fall into the trap not you know not because anyone means that or, or anything but sometimes we fall into the trap of well God's just going to do what God's going to do right and it's it's almost as though the unspoken thing is that you know we don't have a part to play in this when God gets ready to do it he's going to do it if God gets ready to move on people's hearts then he'll do it right and and the thing about that is, is God wants us to know that it's up to us, mm -hmm. right? God wants us to know that when, when you get ready and when you begin to seek me diligently, when you begin to cry out to me, then I will hear and I will move. I mean, that's 2 Chronicles 7, 14, right? If my people who are called by my, say, my, my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And the thing is, is it's not something that God that God um, that God says might happen. It's something that God promises in His Word will happen. And again, I, I think that sometimes we fall under the trap and we kind of get soothed into this thing. Well, God's just going to do it when God gets ready. Well, God, I think, is waiting for us. Um, let's look at some scriptures. Um, turn to Exodus chapter thirty-two. I want to look at some examples of where prayer changed things. Exodus 
in Exodus 32, verse 1. This is a this is um, a place in the Bible where God had led the people of, Egypt, of Israel out of Egypt, right? He led them through. Um, he he led them through the Sinai. He led it, he he parted the waters for them. He poured out the ten plagues on Pharaoh so that uh, that Pharaoh would let his people go. So God did all these miracles for the people of Israel. He fed them in the wilderness. He brought water to them. And, and the, I mean, think of it. You're in this wilderness, right? I don't know if you've ever been in the desert, but there is no food, there is no water, and there's millions of people. I mean, there are millions of people out here in the wilderness. They got no food, they got no water, and and God miraculously provides for them. And you've got to, you, you have to understand, if you're one of a million people or millions of people in this wilderness where there is no food and there is no water, and all of a sudden Moses speaks to a rock and water flows from it, this is a miracle, right? And the thing about miracles is God gives us miracles to change us. He doesn't give us miracles to leave us the way that we are. So God did all these miracles for the people of Israel. And in chapter 32, verse 1, this is, uh, so, so Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. It says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, Moses had been leading these people every single day, providing for them. God provided manna for him. God did all these miracles. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, right? So in this relatively short span of time, Moses leads them. I mean, he even tells them, I'm going to come back, right? It wasn't something that he, like, he just disappeared on them and stuff. And, all, and even after all these miracles, after all the things that God had done from them, their hearts, after this short amount of time, begin to turn away from God. And in um, verse 2, Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings, which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Again, look at this. This is Aaron, the high priest of God, Moses' right-hand man. I mean, you think if anybody's going to stand against this and say, you know, you guys can do whatever you want to, but I'm not going to do that. You'd think that Aaron would be that, right? I mean, Aaron had the inside scoop. Aaron was the, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times in, in religious things or religious circles, you see the outside stuff, right? You don't know the, the I mean, Aaron saw the things that Moses went through. Aaron was there when God, Moses spoke to God. And then Aaron still went with the crowd on this. Um. Verse 3, then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, again, I know that we're all like, if I was there, I would never have done that. But in some senses, we do that ourselves, don't we? We look at things that are not worthy of God. We look at things, we forget the things that God has done for us. And sometimes, I mean, I, sometimes God will do stuff for us and almost immediately we forget, right? And we look to lesser things. We look to our paychecks. We look to our spouses. We look to our jobs. We look to other things to meet those needs. And, and we may not say it, but in some senses, we are putting those things on pedestals and saying, this is your God. 
This is what provides for you. This is what brings you satisfaction. This is what meets your needs, right? In verse uh, 5, Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Look at what he says in verse 10. Now then let me alone and my, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. Now think of this. This is awesome, man. The, the people of Israel didn't even know about this conversation. Can you imagine? Here Moses and God are speaking face to face and God's like, stand aside, I'm going to wipe these people out. These people have no conception that they're inches away from God just destroying them. But look what it says in verse 11. It says, Then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with, a great, with great power and a mighty hand? Now look what he says in verse 12. Here he refers to God's glory. Okay, again, you know, we, we, we want God to move and we want God to, to bless and we want God to save. Say, say like, you know, we want God to save my husband. Why? Because, you know, I mean, it'd be a lot better for our household. We'd get along better. You know, it'd be nice if I could go to church with my husband or our kids, you know, and stuff. It's like my kid's a knucklehead. It'd be nice if it... The thing about when God moves is it's all for His glory, right? It's all to glorify Him. Now, we will get blessed... As a result of that, it's like the woman with the alabaster jar, a uh, vial of perfume, right? She poured it on Jesus' feet, and it, so it was there first and foremost to bless Jesus, but it says that that perfume uh, uh, pervaded the whole household. So as a result, everyone else in that whole household was blessed by it. But that's the thing, when God moves, and, and in the things of God, it is first and foremost to glorify Him and, and to, to honor Him and to give blessing to Him, and then we will get blessed as a result, right? In verse 11, Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Look at this in, in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? You see that? Moses' regard is for the glory of God. He wants God to look good. He doesn't... You know, he loves the people, obviously. He's praying for the people. But first and foremost, he wants God to look good in front of the people. He doesn't want God to look bad. He doesn't want the people to say, you know, God brought these people out. He was going to destroy them in the first place. He wants God to look good. And that's his whole purpose. Um, verse eight, thir or, He says, Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they will inherit it forever. Look at this in verse 14. Some of the awesome, most awesome scriptures in the Bible. 
So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. You see that? I think that's awesome. Because of Moses' prayer, it said God changed his mind. And again, we, we, we are brought up in this, this kind of Calvinistic church that, that says, well, you know, before God, God's determined everything. Everything that you'll ever do, everything that you're doing, everything that you're going to do. Well, when you're sinning, when you're walking in sin, you are not doing what God has called you to do. God never created you. He never called you. He never willed for you to sin. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's awesome that it says here that prayer changed God's mind. And there are many, many places in Scripture where it talks about that. Turn to Amos chapter uh, 7. And my Bible is on page 1104. I wrote that down so it would be easy to find. (laughs) I think it's Hosea, Joel, Amos. And there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Um, On my Bible, it's page 813. Very good. 813? Yeah. Wow. So your Bible is wrong. My Bible has more pages. So. Okay, so Amos chapter 7. Are you guys there? Verse uh, 1. And I'll just, I, I wrote down three scriptures, but there are tons of scriptures of where God changes his mind about what he's going to do in regard to the prayers of people. And, and that's just awesome, man. We can change God's mind. And so in Amos 7, verse 1, he says, Then the, thus the Lord God showed, showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. Now, over and over in the Old Testament, locusts were there as, as judgment from God, right? You see it in, in uh, it was one of the plagues of Pharaoh, right? It says, uh, and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about that, that when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, O Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? Look at verse 3. It says, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. All right. Turn to one more place. In 2 Samuel 24. Second Samuel verse 24, verse 11. Now, over and over in the Old Testament, God would tell the, the kings of Israel not to number the people, right? And the reason why is because um, God didn't want them looking at the strength of the people, at the armies of Israel to determine their strength, right? Because he wanted them to rely on his strength, Right? And, uh, you know, I think that that's, that happens a lot of times in pastoral circles. Well, you know, how many people did your church have this Sunday? Or how many people did your church have this Sunday? You know, it's not about that, right? Because sometimes the few, God, you know, the Bible says that the road, um, the road uh, to heaven is straight and narrow, and few there are that find it, right? And so... I'm not saying that all times or every time and stuff, but a lot of times when, when uh, you, some of the biggest churches that we've ever been to were just, I mean, were just you, wishy-washy, right? 
when it came to the gospel, when it came to the things of God, it's like, well, you know, God's going to forgive whatever you do, you know, and stuff. And it's like, pretty much, basically, you could just live however you wanted to, and all you had to do was ask for forgiveness and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to fill churches with, with people with, with, uh, when you have sermons like that. Because, uh, again, you can, you can be completely unconverted and go to a church like that and, and feel like you're, you're in good with God. And stuff. But the way of the cross is a narrow way. It says, look, God's not going to allow you to live your life any way you want to live. He's not going to allow you to just sin and get away with it and just ask for forgiveness. That's the whole thing about repentance. The whole thing about repentance is like, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to live this way. I want to be set free from this. I want to have these chains broken in my heart. That's repentance. Repentance doesn't just mean saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to still live like this, but, you know, hey, I'm sorry. It's like if you're married and you're cheating on your spouse and you're like, oh, I, I'm sorry, okay? Because I got caught. <laughs> yeah, you got to forgive me because, you know, the Bible says you got to forgive me, right? Right. But it's like you have no intention of changing. That's not repentance. Yeah. Right? Or if you just treat your friend bad and you're like, oh, I mean, I know, I've, I've known many friends like that in my life. They just treat people bad and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. And they expect, you know, that it's just going to be okay and that they keep on doing it. Right? And stuff. And that is not repentance. Repentance means to have a heart that wants to change. And in 2 Samuel um, 24 verse 11. Again, God had told the kings of Israel not to number the people. Well, David numbered the people. Even against the advice of, of his commander, Joab, he numbered the people of God. And Joab warned him, if you do that, God's going to be upset. And so in verse 11, it says, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. I think this is kind of cool in the first place because God's going to punish David, but God says, I'm going to let you choose. And, and in, even, in, even in that, there's grace, right? Even in the fact that God's going to punish J David, he, he gives him a choice. He lets David choose what the punishment's going to be. Um, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you? Come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So God gives him three choices. God says you can either flee from your foes for three months, you can have three days of, of pestilence, or you can have seven years of famine. You make the choice. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us, now fall into the, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And again, I think that's awesome. You know, because the world views God as, as just this God of wrath and vengeance and that God wants to just destroy your life and punish you and, and, and take away every good thing from you and, 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 and just beat you into the dirt. And even in God's punishing of David, he's showing him grace and mercy. And David says, you know what? I'd rather have God punish me than man. Because he's saying that God is more merciful than man is. It's good. You know, because God will show me mercy. And I don't know about you, but I have been in situations with man where man's like completely merciless. And it's like, I'm going to make you pay every last cent. <laughs> you know, I am going to make sure you get punished. Well, even in God's wrath, God's remembering mercy. And David says, yeah, put me in the hands of God. 
Verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men from the people of Dan, from Dan to Beersheba died. When the, angel of the Lord, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, look at this, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it's enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was uh, by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So again, God could have punished them, but he, he, he relented, right? And that's the point that I'm trying to make is that when we pray to God, God hears our prayers. And God wants a church. He wants a people who look at the world, who look at the situation, who look at the circumstances that we're in right now and not blame it on our government, not blame it on the LGBT community, not blame it on our schools, not blame it on all these other factors because it's not there. That's not the problem. The problem is us, the people of God. We are not, A, number one, living according to the way that he wants us to where our lives will be a testimony and will we'll uh, we'll con bring conviction to the people around us. As a matter of fact, we're trying to live just like the world. We're trying to look like the world. We're trying to be like the world and stuff. And there's no conviction. There's no, like, okay, this is the way that God has called us to live. This is the way that you're living, right? And... And God wants a people that are going to pray and to seek Him. He wants us as the believers, as His people, to take responsibility. Turn to Isaiah 59. That's what Keith Green used to say. He used to say this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of unbelievers. We as a church, and that's the thing, we are abdicating our responsibility as the church. And we, we're, we are looking at the world and we're like, man, this world is terrible. And yeah, and, and the thing is, is everybody agrees. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. But what are we doing about it? If we as the people of God do not rise up and begin to seek him, it's going to get worse and worse. It will not change. It's not going to change on its own. It's not going to go away. It's not. And we can't be like ostriches and stick our heads in the sand and hope that there's going to be a change. There won't be a change until we begin to seek God. And every single revival that's happened in the history of mankind has happened because somebody was praying, because somebody was seeking God, because somebody would not let go of God until he turned around and blessed them. In Isaiah 50, uh, 59, verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot, cannot hear. And, you know, you, I, I get that way sometimes, right? I mean, I... I try to pray and I try to pray, but sometimes I get, I get overwhelmed. I'm like, and I get filled with unbelief. I'm like, man, there's nothing that can change this world. But that's the thing is that we forget the most powerful force in this world besides God himself is the prayers of the saints. And we forget the privilege that we have as believers and the power that we have. And the reason why it doesn't happen, the reason why it doesn't work is because we don't believe and we don't pray with, uh, pray with faith. And anything, if we're not praying with faith, it's not going to happen. 
right? The Bible says, you know, that if you come to God and you ask, but you don't ask in faith, you're like someone that's just tossed about by the way, by the winds of the sea. Don't let that, that man expect he's going to receive anything from the Lord. And that's the way that we are as believers because we have been so deceived and lied to by the powers of darkness, by Satan. And what we do is we look at the waves rather than looking at the power of God. We look at the waves and we're like, this is too massive. There's no way that we can overcome this. And we can't in ourselves. But, the Spirit, but if we pray and we seek God, He has promised that He will do it. In Isaiah 59 verse 1, He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteousness righteously and no one pleads honestly. And again, I, I believe this is a picture of the church right now and stuff. And he says, uh, they trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They, they hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. In other words, and again, this what happens in churches a lot of times is there's just sniping that goes on, right? Elder so-and-so is mad at elder so-and-so and stuff, and churches every day split because people are fighting against each other, because people are hatching plans against each other, because people are backbiting, because people are gossiping, and, and these are leaders in the church, not, not, not to mention just the average person that goes to church. These, this happens in churches all across the world right now. He says, um, verse 7, their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, devastation, and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace and there's no justice in their track, tracks. They have made the, their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, behold, for, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. And again, the, again, this is the church. I mean, we look at the state of the church, we look at what's going on, and we're like, um, that's what I see. I just see darkness. I see and again, it's, there are pockets of, of just blessing and there are people that love God and stuff. But I'm just saying overall, the church is in darkness. The church is in uh, this place. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We, we grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our, our, we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns, from, turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. 
Look at this in verse 16. And he saw that there was no man, and look at this, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. This is from the viewpoint of God. God looks at the situation. He looks at the world that we're in, and he wants to do something about it. He wants to change it. it but he looks at his church, and, and he wants a people that are going to, that are going to begin to lay down their lives, begin to lay hold of him, and begin to seek him in prayer for change. Because that's where it starts, right? I mean, it's good that we go out on the streets. It's good that we, we, we uh, minister to other people. It's good. All the ministry things that we do are good. But first and foremost, what we need above all is we need the Holy Spirit to move. And the way that the Holy Spirit moves is he moves in answer to the prayers of his people. And again, in <clears throat> verse 16 again, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. You see that? And so it, it breaks the heart of God when, when we as a people are not seeking him for change. Because again, we are responsible for this world and, and I'm not trying to throw a burden on you or, or on us or whatever and things, but... God wants us to begin to, to I, I've been thinking about this all week and I've been praying about it. God, put your burden on my heart mm -hmm. because, I mean, I, I've just been looking at my life and examining my life and just saying, you know, I don't, I don't really care. I see the world and I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I can easily talk about the world and talk against, you know, what's going on in this world. And oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And I, and I can't believe that's happening and Al Qaeda and all the, you know, the, the Muslim thing and everything that's happening in the world, the, the gay thing and, you know, the transgender and all this stuff. And it's like, I, I look down my nose at it, but it's like, God says, well, what are you doing about it? And you know, I, God will move when he has a people. Like, and it, you know, and the, the, the thing about it is, is like you read the history of revivals and it doesn't take a lot of people sometimes. The revival in Wales in 1904 and 1905 happened because three people were praying. And there's been other revivals that happened because like one person here and, or one person here were just praying and laying hold of God. And like Jacob, they wouldn't let go of him until he blessed them. And, and God is looking for a person or persons that will stand in the gap and say, you know what, God, I'm not just going to be satisfied with looking at the world and, and, and just going, oh, this is terrible. I want to do something about it. I want to be a part of the change. I want to be a part of, 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 of seeking you until you do something. Because again, when we pray, when, when, and okay, we're, we're laying aside the, the sins in our life. We're laying aside the things in our lives that aren't pleasing to him and stuff. That's great. But what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is so that we can draw near to him. God is looking for Moses's. Right? God is looking for Isaiah's. He's looking for Elisha's. The Bible says Elisha was just like us. A man just like us, with a nature just like us. But he prayed and he sought God and God heard him. And because of, God, of Elijah's prayers, God shut up the heavens for three and a half years. I mean, imagine that, that your prayers could affect the weather. 
just the, the weather for three and a half years. And then you go and pray again. And because God hears your prayers again, he lets it rain. And it says that Elijah was no different from us. And, you know, surely we all have our responsibilities. We all, and God doesn't want us to just, you know, um, just be monks or, or be weird or whatever. But I'm just saying that um, somehow there's got to be a cry in the people of God to where we're seeking him for change. We're seeking him for life to come and flow. And when we do that, God will hear, and God will do that. Um, turn to one more place, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 is a metaphor, and it's a picture of what revival looks like. It's a picture of what happens when God begins to move. And that's the thing. Again, it's not, well, this is what we ought to be doing, or this is something we should do, or this is something that we, 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 we got to do, or anything like that. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, right? And all I'm trying to do is paint a picture of what could be. What, what the possibilities are. I'm, I'm not saying that this is what you should do or this is what I should do or this is what anybody should do. This is what will happen if somebody does do this. And in Ezekiel 37 verse 1, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Now, what are bones? Bones are, are something that once was alive, right? If, if, if you were to be transported in the spirit and you see this valley of dry bones, the, the thought that's going to be in your mind is, one, at one point, all these bones were people who were alive. A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, and and now they're they're dry beyond dry, and there's there's no hope. I don't I don't know if you guys have have ever been like in a pasture and saw like a cow bone or or a bone of some animal or something. And but when you see that, you're like, this thing's dead, <laughs> you know? Like a coyote got this thing. I don't know what happened to it, but it's dead. It's not coming back. And so this is the a picture that Ezekiel is seeing, and God is showing him these bones, and they're everywhere. And so Ezekiel's thinking in his mind, you know, used to be, there. this used to be a bunch of people, a vast army of people that were once filled with life, who once were filled with life, and now they're dead, and they're, they're dry, and there's, 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 I mean, from his standpoint, there's no hope, there's no life, there's no way that, 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 there, that there's going to be any life. And I'm sure that he's wondering, why has God brought me to see this? In verse 2, He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And I think this is awesome. So here the Lord goes, So uh, what do you think? Can these bones live? And he takes the easy way out and he says, Lord, you know. 
<laughs> he's not going to say, oh, you know, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, but you know, in his mind, that's what he's thinking. But he says, Lord, you know. In verse 4, he says, Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow, black, grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. I think Hollywood should do a movie of this. I think that would be just so yeah, awesome just awesome. to see this coming to life. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm imagining Ezekiel. He is standing there, and he's freaking out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you couldn't just stand there and just be passive. Oh, hey, check it out. This guy's getting back up, and skin's coming on him. He's seeing before his very eyes all these bones, all this death start to rise up and start to live again. He's seeing the life. In verse eight, and he says, and I, or he says, and I looked, and behold, sinew were on, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there was, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come on these, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, so that they may come to life. And you know what? A lot of times with us, when God is using us. Things happen as a progression, right? And a lot of times what happens is we see a little bit of life, and with that life, we're satisfied. Mm -hmm. We're like, I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. And so we stop right there. Mm -hmm. And God, with Ezekiel, God's saying, don't just stop when you see just a little bit of life. Don't just stop when you see a little bit of movement in the waters. Don't just stop when you see a little bit. Keep going until you see life, you see breath. Until you see something, you see these dead things truly come to life. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, God, uh, sometimes we pray and, and a lot of, say like you're praying for someone that you know that's lost and you see a little bit of something happening with them. A lot of times we, we stop praying at that point mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, well then God's doing it and stuff. The way of God is like, don't stop praying because you see a little bit of life. Because what happens is you start seeing a little bit of life, the enemy's always going to come in. Mm-hmm. And just like it says in the parable of the sower, you know, you sow the seed, the, the workman sows the seed, immediately, immediately the birds of the air come in to begin to, uh, to, to eat up the seed. And so we are in a spiritual battle. Again, this is all the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit moving through us. And so what happens is we begin to see a little bit of life. The Holy Spirit says, don't just stop there. Keep going. Keep praying and stuff. And so Ezekiel keeps praying. He says, verse 10, So, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their, on their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, again, that word breath in the Hebrew is, is the same as the spirit. And I, I think that's what, what's cool about that is like in the, in the Hebrew, the word, um, the spirit is ruach, right? And that's the same concept as aloha. Um, 
like in in the Hawaiian, uh, everyone's like, well, uh, you know, aloha and stuff. But for for someone who's in a who is an actual Hawaiian, when they say aloha, it's not just aloha, it's aloha. And what they're doing is they're imparting that breath, they're imparting that spirit to you, and that's what the real the Holy Spirit is. Is when 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 you're talking about the Holy Spirit, it's that impartation of the life. And so when he's saying, breathe on these dry bones, he's saying, breathe the Spirit into them. Breathe the life of the Holy Spirit into these dry bones. And again, it's, it's something supernatural, and it's not just us. It's us working with the Lord, but it's Him flowing through us, and the breath of the Lord God coming through us, and He's touching everything around. And God wants to do that with our lives. It's not just, it's not just us witnessing. It's not just us of ministering to people it's not just us touching here and touching there and it's like it's like when jesus raised lazarus from the dead it's like lazarus was in the dead four days they're telling him lord there is nothing that you can do to this man he has been in the grave four days don't waste your breath jesus says lazarus come forth and lazarus came forth and he's still bound in his grave clothes and jesus had to tell him unwrap him set him free and that's the thing. It's a lot of times we see the Lord move and, and people are still wrapped in their grave clothes and stuff. And again, when, when I have seen so many times where, where you've shared the Lord with people and people have prayed the prayer, they've come to the Lord and stuff, and they, you, they seem like they are in. They are on fire. They're ready to go and stuff. Two weeks later, they're, they're back. A month later, they've fallen back. They're no longer following the Lord. And stuff. Why does that happen? Other people, man, you share, you share the Lord with. We've got this friend in Colorado with, that we shared the Lord with, and she is on fire now, and she is leading other people to the Lord, and she's she's moving, and she's just going, and she's she's on fire for the Lord. And I think that sometimes is is what happens is is we think because someone prays the prayer, or because someone has has this repentance, or someone has this thing with God, that all of a sudden they're good to go. And so we stop praying for him, right? Or we stop ministering to him. And again, I think that a lot of times what happens is we stop before, before they're fully birthed or before God has done his complete work in them and stuff. And again, just like we said, it's like as soon as we start, as soon as God starts ministering, as soon as the Spirit of God starts working on people, the enemy will always come in and try to, try to abort that birth in the Spirit. All this stuff in the, that we see in the natural, the abortion and the things that's going on with abortion, that's the same thing that's happening in the spirit, right? The enemy sees that this person has the life. This person, every single one of us have potential. Every single one of us had the potential that if God gets a hold of that potential, who knows what this person can be? This person can be the next Billy Graham. This person could be the uh, next um, whoever. Um, this person has that potential and stuff. And so the enemy is not going to stand by and let this person get born again and filled with the fire of God. The enemy will always, always, always come and try to abort that life before it has a chance to see sunlight, right? And so, again, God wants us when we're, when we're, when we're, when we're ministering to people, don't just quit at the first signs of life. Keep praying. Keep pressing. Make sure those people... And that's the thing, Paul, even after people were birthed in the Spirit, Paul said, I, every time Paul spoke to people, he says, I pray for you daily. Paul is like, I, 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 you guys are always on my heart. 
and stuff. Paul didn't, Paul didn't lead people to the Lord and then leave them. Paul didn't come to the city and preach to people and then he's gone. Paul carried those people. He birthed them on their hearts. They became to him his sons and his daughters. And like I pray for my sons and my daughters almost daily. I try to anyway. Sometimes I, I don't make it and stuff. But I try to always pray for my sons and daughters. Not because it's something that I do, but because I want to see my sons and daughters walking before the Lord. I don't want to see them going to church. I don't want to see them just being religious and looking good on the outside. I want to see them walking with the Lord. And so I pray for them all the time. In the same way, Paul prayed constantly for the people that he led to the Lord. It wasn't just a religious thing that he did. It wasn't something like, well, hey, I led 15 people to the Lord. Now, look at me and stuff. It was all about, I want to see these people made perfect and in completion before God. And they were his children to him. Um, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your eyes, your graves, and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you, know, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. And again, this is the mark of when God's moving, is when there is life. And when these dry, dead bones are not just going to the religious um, things, they're not just going to church, they're not just doing the religious things, but there's life in them. And that's what, that's, uh, that's what the Lord is seeking. Turn to one more place in Isaiah chapter 30. And this, this is the heart of God for our generation. This is the heart of God for all this darkness that we see, all the unbelievers that we're around every day, all the people that curse God, all the people that mock God, all the people that hate God. God loves those people. And he desires that they be saved, that they be transformed, and that they are walking with him with all of their hearts. In Isaiah 30, verse 18. He says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Again, um, the world paints this picture of God that God is just this angry God. He, he just wants to punish people. He wants to take away all your joy, all your fun, all your, all your life. But that's completely the opposite of the word. It says, The Lord longs to be gracious for, to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on, on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And how blessed are all those who long for Him. Um, he says, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. Do you mm, see that? That's good. He says, He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. 
and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous on the day your livestock will groom in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. Um, in verse 26, he says, The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. What does that mean for us? That means that it just means blessing, right? Mm -hmm. And again, God sees the darkness of our world. He sees the, the situation that we're in. He wants to change it. He sent his son to change the world for God so loved the whole world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him would be saved. And so God waits, just like we read right there, he waits and he longs to be gracious. He longs to change the situation that he, we're in. And over and over throughout history, God has taken simple people, people who are no no one important, people who who, who weren't, uh, big in the eyes of the world, God has taken small people. Um, there, there have been cases of people in revivals, like there, there's a case uh, in a, one revival where these two older older sisters... What was this revival? Yeah, they were invalids. I, I think one was blind, the other was deaf, right? Crippled. One was, was crippled? Blind and one was okay. They, they, were, like, they, they were just these old sisters that lived together. They were really old and stuff, and, and they couldn't really do anything but just seek the Lord. <laughs> And because of their prayers, God just swept through the Hebrides in, in Scotland, the, these islands and stuff, and God just just blessed multiple multiple people. And, and my point is, is that it doesn't matter if you're some, some, some preacher, it doesn't matter if you're in ministry, not in ministry, it doesn't matter if, if, if you're somebody in your church, it doesn't matter if, if, you're, if you're someone that people respect or look up to, it doesn't matter. God will hear the cries of a people that humble themselves. God will hear the cries of someone that, that says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay hold of you and I'm not going to let go of you until you bless the situation. And just like we read over and over in the Word of God, our prayers can change God's mind. Our prayers can change God's heart. Right? Amen. There's so, a story about Johnson... He said that back when he was new at the deliverance ministry, there was just one of them that was fortunate, and like, there was several of them 